listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Lauren Fultonberg. The Supreme Court is set to weigh in on the next big round in the fight over abortion rights. In December, the justices will hear arguments in a case out of Mississippi, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which deals with a law that banned abortion after 15 weeks, and that's before a fetus is considered viable. Paula Cole teaches economics and gender and women's studies at DU's College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, and she is one of 154 researchers from around the country who signed a letter to the Supreme Court, called an amicus brief, explaining what they call the downstream impacts of Mississippi's restrictive abortion law. Things like how reduced access to abortion affects income, educational opportunities, and professional success. For Cole, it's a chance to get beyond the moral argument of whether abortion is right or wrong, and instead use data to inform an important policy decision. I think one of the ways that we've used it here to look at how abortion access changes women's lives is by actually looking at what happened when Roe was passed uh, and when some of the what we call repeal states uh, had abortion access before other states. And so uh, as an economist, it's really difficult for us to conduct real experiments because we're looking at the economic lives of people. So we can't do things the way that the biologists do in their labs. And so uh, we use a lot of data to kind of um, make casual inferences about what's happening. And we've made a lot of advancements in that statistical analysis that we use to be able to kind of compare uh, economic outcomes in states that had abortion access, those that didn't, or when Roe was passed, uh, what happened to abortion access when all women had uh, access to it and how that changed uh, their economic outcomes. There's been a lot of abortion-related news recently. I don't feel like I've heard a lot about the economic outcomes or these downstream impacts of overturning or maintaining the status with Roe v. Wade. Can you explain to us exactly what downstream impacts are and how they might have an impact on women's social and economic lives? Yeah, I think one of the things we know is that if women uh, end up having unintended pregnancies, it really changes the economic trajectory of their lives. So they might be less likely to go to college, uh, maybe less likely to work full time because they have care responsibilities. Uh, and in addition to kind of like not having the same economic opportunities, they now have this extra costs associated with caring for a young person. Uh, and so the expenses of childcare, the expenses of the healthcare cost of giving birth, uh, all of those things add up and really change what their economic lives look like. Mm -hmm. There's this line in the amicus brief that, that says the financial effects of being denied an abortion are as large or larger than those of being evicted, losing health insurance, being hospitalized, or being exposed to flooding from a hurricane. And, and that was something that really jumped out at me. Yeah, I, I think it, um, for women that the role of pregnancy in their life really is a major life event. And I think uh, women being able to control when they have pregnancies is really important for their economic security and stability. Sure. As one of the studies that you cite in there points out that even just delaying a pregnancy by a year um, and having a child when you're ready a year later can drastically improve economic standing and income. 
yeah, just, just that extra time and being able to, to plan accordingly, um, lets you get things in place that you maybe wouldn't have had before, or maybe that year is you're finishing your last year of college or finishing your last year of high school, uh, or finding access to childcare and making arrangements. And so having that time to really, uh, prepare economically for a new child, I think is really important to, to all parents. Uh, and you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that, uh, about 6% of women age 15 to 34 have an unintended pregnancy each year. So uh, it's actually a bit more common than we might think uh, the likelihood that someone becomes pregnant and they weren't intending that to happen. I was interested to find mention of studies also that show abortion access improves quality of life for other children in the same family, um, that maybe they're less likely to experience poverty uh, or neglect or abuse, and even more likely to graduate college uh, way down the line. How do you explain those impacts on those children? Well, I think, you know, if we add another child to a family that maybe is already uh, feeling the pressure of having multiple children or having a child that it takes away additional resources from the other children. Uh, we know that some of the women who have abortions uh, already have children and they they already understand the economic challenges of cost of, of raising kids today. And they're aware that that uh, another child might be too much for them and their family to be successful. Uh, and so I think not having an additional child when you're not, not ready for it allows uh, to save more for the child to go to college that you already have or to provide greater resources uh, and support to that child, whether it be time or money uh, that really leads to their success down the road. Are there any other trends that jumped out at you from this amicus brief? Yeah, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me was that uh, recent studies show um, that Roe reduced teen motherhood by 34% and teen marriage by 20%. So using some of those statistical techniques, we can actually evaluate how it's impacted the lives of young women and how important that healthcare option uh, is to changing their, their economic outcomes. There are, are just so many interesting statistics and trends in this brief, which we'll post in our show notes on our website. But I noticed that for a lot of these indices and statistics that younger women and also women of color seem to shoulder the brunt of the impact. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that might be? Yeah, I think there are a couple things at play, but the, the one at the top of the list for me really has to do with access to affordable health care. And we know that uh, younger women are more likely to be uninsured and uh, contraceptive coverage is often included in our insurance plans. But if you don't have an insurance plan, then maybe you're less likely to easily afford contraception and making it a bit more difficult. For example, in Mississippi, who's bringing uh, this case up to the Supreme Court, 25% of young people are uninsured in the state um, and therefore have a harder time to access uh, the reproductive health care that they would need uh, to better manage unintended pregnancies. Mm -hmm. um, 
in that same respect, because uh, thinking about uh, women of color and how they're impacted, I, it's much the same that they too have a harder time accessing uh, affordable health insurance because of the larger wealth disparities we see with throughout the economic system. And so because we don't have things like universal health care, where everyone has the same access to reproductive health care, uh, we see different disparities uh, in how individuals are impacted by access to abortion. Right. That affordability issue seems to be huge uh, because it seems like, statistically speaking, those seeking abortions tend to be lower income or uninsured, like you said. Yeah, about half the people um, seeking abortions are qualify as low income. Uh, and so really connecting it back to maybe if they had uh, easier chance of uh, contraceptive access, that maybe we could lower abortions that way, but we haven't decided as a nation to, to provide health insurance to everyone in that easy, accessible and affordable way. Paula, we've talked a lot about the costs on an individual level here. Can you explain a little bit more about what the cost might be of a law like this to the taxpayers, to the state, to the federal government? Yeah, great question. I think uh, one of the things that we know is women are more likely to live in poverty, and we often call that the feminization of poverty. And the primary reason they're more likely to live in poverty is because of the care responsibilities that they have uh, for young people. And so uh, we know that women are more likely to use WIC, use SNAP, use TANF, uh, require uh, healthcare or housing assistance. Uh, and so I think if we allow women to have uh, more choice in their reproductive decisions, it also increases their likelihood of success in the labor market and making them less likely to need support from the state. Because uh, if they're having unintended pregnancies that they financially can't afford, they're gonna need assistance from somewhere. And so they're likely to turn to those state-run programs and we're likely to see greater poverty in those locations uh, where that happens more. You had mentioned contraception earlier and access to contraception. The state of Mississippi and uh, Thomas Dobbs, who's the state health officer here, who's part of this Supreme Court case, they have argued that that increased access to contraception that they see in their state and existing policies have, uh, in their words, obviated the need for abortions. Are they right? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that that's the the claim that they're making that, you know, essentially, because we have more contraceptive access that we no longer need access to abortion, but uh, the data says otherwise. In particular, we know that, for example, the pill um, fails 6% of the time. Uh, granted, some of that's because of user error, but again, like, like, it's not foolproof. And uh, as I mentioned before, not everyone has and can afford that contraceptive care because they don't have health insurance that really opens the door for them to easily um, access it. Uh, and I think that there are also often other health reasons why women might need abortion access beyond just uh, preventing unintended pregnancies because of the some of the other things that can occur. And so uh, there's clear evidence that abortion is a central component of women's health care uh, and that having that access uh, today, even though we have new technologies around preventing pregnancies, is still needed for the care of women's 
uh, well-being. A lot of your research deals with other areas of women's well-being, including paid family leave, most notably, um, which has been a big issue here in Colorado. How does your research in paid family leave intersect with this brief on abortion policy? Yeah, you know, for me, in thinking about the intersection of economics and women's life, I really center the story around how we care for each other and how we care for people. And one of the things that we definitely know is true is that we've asked women to take on more of that care work. Uh, they're doing more care work in the home. They're doing more care work in the marketplace. And so when we think about something like abortion access uh, or not having access, uh, the likelihood of women having to take on even more care work is really apparent. Uh, and I think when I think of something like the paid leave policies, that paid family leave is one of the ways uh, we're trying to support women in the care work that they're doing. Uh, and unfortunately, right now, the labor market and within the home, we don't have a lot of policies, place, policies in place that really uh, support women in doing that care work. So women have really been taking on the burden of doing the care work and they've paid for it economically. Uh, one of the largest predictors of the gender wage gap has to do with the care work that women are doing in the home and the marketplace. Uh, and so that care has really created disparity and economic outcomes for women. When we talk about the woman's place in the workforce uh, and how that plays with sexism and gender norms, what do these cases about abortion in Mississippi, in Texas, what do they say more broadly about gender roles in our society? It really is a story of power uh, and control in some ways, right? That, you know, women having control over when they have pregnancies is really central to the choices that they can make economically. Uh, and if we give them less control, then they're gonna have to take on more of that care work. So in many ways, it's really uh, the patriarchy using women to be caregivers and us benefiting from women who are taking on those care roles, uh, whether they're caring for children in the home or caring for children in the marketplace. Um, I think a, a great example of that would be looking at the cost of childcare. Uh, across the US, childcare costs around 25 to 30% of family budgets super expensive. So even if she has a child and then wants to be a worker, uh, the burden of caring for that child is often placed on her. And so it's like, does she make enough in the labor market to cover the cost of childcare? Or does she have to stay home to care for the child because the labor market doesn't pay her enough? I think where we are in our skills changes that labor market experience. But either way, that burden of thinking about childcare and covering the cost of care falls on her. And so when we don't have policies like abortion access or paid family leave, uh, we're really putting that economic cost of caring for children on the shoulders of women in ways that men don't have to um, shoulder it in the same way. Right. Uh, in that brief, uh, something that, again, stood out to me is that mothers experience this immediate and persistent drop in their expected earnings by one third, uh, like as soon as they become parents. And that does not happen for men, right? 
Yeah, men often actually benefit from their employers finding out they're going to be parents because they're looked at as being a more stable worker because they're going to have to provide for the family, uh, whereas women are viewed as being less stable uh, and less likely to give be given some of those same opportunities. And even within that context, like women before they have children, the workplace is already doing things, assuming that she might, uh, whether the workplace intends or on it, <laughs> it makes that decision intentionally or not, uh, we see that the workplace is just not really set up in a way to support working parents uh, and in particular working moms because they're more likely to have those care responsibilities in place. And so if we really want to improve women's economic outcomes, we need to make it easier for them to care for children. And reducing abortion access would make it harder for them to have the choice about whether they're having children. Uh, and so I would really just kind of look at the data, like women are more likely to live in poverty, they learn earn less income, they have substantially less wealth than their male counterparts, uh, and all of that's connected to having and caring for children. And so uh, if we want people to live good lives, we need them to be able to have stable economic lives and have policies that support those choices for women. As both a woman and a researcher, what was it like for you to sign on to this brief and what is it going to be like for you as this court, this case comes in front of the Supreme Court? You know, I, I think for me as an economist, like when I look at the data around how having abortion access greatly improves the economic outcomes for women, it seems to me like a no brainer that we would follow the science and continue to allow women to have this choice in their economic lives. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the public discussion around abortion access has been more about a moral issue rather than thinking about the economic realities uh, for the, the moms and the would-be children uh, and the families that are impacted by those policies. Uh, and so I feel really strongly as a scientist, like let's listen to the science, right? We, we, we have clear answers. The data is very clear. There's a lot of robust research uh, out there. The research has gotten stronger over time as our statistical uh, capabilities have improved. Um, I, like many though, I'm nervous that uh, women might lose this choice uh, in their how they move forward in their lives. And what we know in particular is that those states where women would lose abortion access, it's gonna become even more of a financial burden to them to seek that care elsewhere. Uh, so that loss of abortion access will fall more on uh, the shoulder of low-income women and women of color who have less resources to seek care elsewhere. So it'll increase economic disparities. And I'm working really hard for us to, to think differently and address those problems. So uh, yeah, I'm nervous. Do you think as a society, Paula, we might experience any sort of I don't know, economic whiplash, so to speak, of having no abortion access, abortion restriction, and then having Roe as the standard since 1973 and now going back to where we came from? What we definitely know is um, we don't have the studies to show that yet, right? So that definitely would be something economists would immediately look at. We could then again compare 
all right, what happens when abortion access is taken away? Uh, and, you know, what does it look like for the states who still have it and the states that don't? Uh, and so I, I think it's difficult from a historical context because not only uh, did Roe usher in abortion access, but we also had so many technological changes around uh, reproductive health care that really opened up the labor market in lots of different ways. Uh, added to that, it became more of a social norm for women with young children to enter the labor market. So that increased labor force participation uh, of women with children and having access to childcare really changed those. So it's hard to say specifically what that might look like uh, down the road, but uh, I would be fairly confident saying that we would probably see a drop in labor force participation, much like we have here. Uh, one of the things we know from COVID-19 is that um, women have been more likely to exit the labor market because of the child care struggles that are still continuing uh, because of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and we haven't fully restored that access to child care uh, that would allow women to participate in the labor market again. So uh, knowing that more women would have unintended pregnancies, they would definitely have a harder time being workers. I was just going to ask Paula if there was anything that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to say or anything you wanted to close on. I, I think, you know, the last thing I would maybe add is just that recognition that uh, we tend to, in the media and popular discussion of abortion, really kind of think about it solely as that moral choice. And I think it's much more complex than that, and that we as a society should be having more complex conversations about the reality of what a policy like this means for individual families, for women, for our communities, uh, and thinking about how we can support each other and being successful and what that looks like versus just kind of maybe fighting over who's morally right. Uh, I think there's a better solution out there in some ways. That's Paula Cole, an expert in economics and gender and women's studies. The Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization on December 1st. We have everything you need to know about the case in our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Plus, you'll find a copy of the amicus brief Cole signed. You'll also see some of Cole's research on the impacts of paid family leave in Colorado and across the country. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Lauren Fultonberg, and this is Radio Ed.